Well, welcome in, everybody, to another edition of the Boardwalk Hardwood Floor Behind the Bench. Alex Ferrario sitting in for Chris Kerber, who will be with us tonight for Puck Drop, 9.30 between the Blues and Canucks, Game 5 out in Edmonton. Pre-game festivities started at about 8.30, and this starts a full two hours, two and a half hours, I guess, of our pre-pre-game coverage before we get to the Canucks tonight. we got a lot of interviews that we've played over 101 these last couple of days. I talked with Donnie Fandango and Jeff Burton, so a lot of good material coming your way before we get to puck drop but we started off tonight with one of my favorites and he is a lifesaver because he's coming through and jumping on with us for this hour he's jeremy rutherford of the athletic you said one of your favorites i was looking around the room to find out who it was <laughs> you know better than that you're always my favorite it's a go-to with you jr um let's start with this buddy because this is uncharted territories for you for everybody that covers hockey teams not being able to actually cover the hockey team from the big picture of all of this, being in this bubble, seeing the success that has played out from the NHL, another positive round of negative tests in the NHL, I mean, there are little things that you can look at and you could say, boy, this 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 hasn't been great, at least from the player's perspective of being in a bubble, not being able to get out like they've talked about. But overall, this was a success for the NHL. Yeah, if you're a NHL player and you're up there in Edmonton or we should say Toronto too, Life's been tough. I mean, you listen to some of these guys and you hear some of the scuttle, but it's Groundhog Day. And they <laughs> knew it going in, uh, and they also knew, Alex, that they'd be missing their families. And you can tell. I mean, you think about a guy like Alex Petrangelo who has a, a wife who's expecting, you know, the Tuka Rask story yep. from this past week. He opted out. Uh, it is tough for these guys, but... You know, you listen to people and they say, hey, people in the military have to go away for right. months on end, a year, and these guys are getting handsomely paid. So let's not feel sorry for them, but let's just point out that these guys are away for a long time and asked to perform at a high level while they're going through these emotions of being away from everyone. But if you put all that aside, Alex, for everybody else, for us watching, it's been absolutely fantastic, and the bubble has 100% worked. Every Monday, the NHL puts out a tweet that says zero positive tests. Yeah. You could almost use the same tweet every week, right? <laughs> it's been amazing. So the bubble has worked. I feel like it's just the same screenshot from the NHL that they tweet out saying, hey, zero positive tests once again. because the, But that's the success rate. And, you know, Jamie Rivers was talking about this today on 101 ESPN, JR, of um, of watching the Blackhawks and Golden Knights end their series last night. They shook hands, and it took you back to feeling like these are the actual playoffs. And I thought he made a great point because, one, this is uncharted territory for everybody. Like, even these players, they're not used to this. They're used to the emotion of the crowds. But to end a hard-fought series like that by shaking hands at the middle of the ice, by sitting there and, and you know, acknowledging your opponent in a best-of-seven series, it takes you back to feeling like, hey, these players trusted this system, but more so they are treating this like an actual postseason. Yeah, I remember a couple months ago, when you know sports writers were sitting down trying to figure out ideas and ask pertinent questions to what the bubble would be like you know we were thinking about stories where is there going to be checking you know they were talking about there's no spitting uh, uh, you know uh, uh, yeah. allowed we were talking about 
you always have that handshake at the end of the series, but you're not going to be able to do mm-hmm. that. What are they going to tap their uh, helmets at each other? You know, just what are they going to do? And I think it's been such a success that now it seems normal. The hockey seems normal. You want to see the traditional handshake line at the end of a series, you know, and now you see those things. So by all accounts, this thing has been magnificent. What has this been like for a, uh, a, a reporter covering this team on a daily basis? And I know you don't do what you used to do with the Post-Dispatch. Now it's more features surrounding the St. Louis Blues, but you cover this team from day one to the end of the season, JR. What has this been like in terms of the Zoom availability? Because it's been different for me as a pre- and post-game host, not being able to strike up those conversations from not being at the game, watching what's going on on the ice and seeing things in the corner of your eyes. Is it a much different feeling for you, or do you find yourself falling back into the same um, same things? Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, you're just excited that there's hockey, and there's something to cover. There's something to provide the fans with the coverage. But yeah, you're not at the arena. You're not seeing things in the corner. You're not seeing a Sammy Blay go down the tunnel. He's potentially, you know, nicked up. Mm-hmm. So those things that you're used to being able to write down in your notebook and, and ask about later on, it's not there. I'm watching it on TV, just like everybody here uh, back in St. Louis. But from a writing perspective, it is difficult because, you know, especially during the regular season, you can kind of wander around the locker room, as yeah. you know, and, and, and talk to Braden Chin for a couple minutes and find out that, you know, his brother... Uh, had a baby and and soon they're coming to town and he's excited and he plays better in front of his family you know those kind of things and then it could develop into a story there's so many nuggets like that Uh, O'Reilly is using his brother Cal's stick because uh, he doesn't like his stick Mm -hmm. so you know just little nuggets so when you watch the game on TV I try to develop you know second third period some ideas okay what am I pulling away from this game what can I write about but then even if you come up with something that you like you don't know who you're getting on the Zoom calls. Yeah. So when the game's over, the NHL uh, makes these guys available. And if you want to write about Jake Allen, you might get Petrangelo on the Zoom call. So now you're asking Alex Petrangelo, well, Jake played well. What do you think? And, yeah. and so it's difficult to nail down the story uh, that you want to. But for the most part, you know, these are the circumstances. This is what we have to deal with. And, you know, if you're going to be good at what you do, you've got to think of alternative ideas. It'll be an interesting uh, thing moving forward. And look, this is this is the new normal right now. We hope it's not the new normal moving forward in this strange time of this pandemic. But, you know, from an athlete's perspective, and you've covered them for a long time, JR., this is a little bit easier for them. They like that personal interaction, but they don't like the the uh, the the scrums around them after games or answering the tough questions. It's easier to do a Zoom conference call and answer these questions. So this will be kind of an interesting territory moving forward if we ever get back to normal of what the NHL wants to do with these circumstances, because the NHL knows the outlet for these players is the media being able to cover them on a daily basis. Yeah, and I think as long as, from a fan's perspective, as long as the fans hear from the coaches and players, I've often found that they don't really care about the media access, which I totally understand. Yeah. You know, the less that the players have to deal with the media is probably fine in the, in the fans' eyes. Mm-hmm. But I would just like to explain, you know, doing it 20 years, that you come up with more unique content, you come up with different stuff. And not only that, but when you have so many outlets covering the team, right. with this current situation, if this were to whatever, you know, in the future, be what we have, Zoom calls, Everything you turn on, the radio, the TV, you read the athletic website, 
all the, the content is the exact same thing. Yeah. And so we're not allowed to kind of be creative with what we're doing. So, Alex, the NHL has said from the get-go, from the beginning of this pandemic, that, hey, we have these restrictions now. You know, the playoffs will have the Zoom calls. But when we can get back to, quote, yeah. unquote, normal – then uh, we'll allow you guys back in the locker room. We just don't know. I mean, that could be the end of next season. Yeah, I mean, that's the part that nobody knows right now. But I'll tell you this, the NHL has done such a, a outstanding job of of moving this league forward and bringing more fans into it. And now is an even bigger opportunity for them to do that because of all eyes focused on the NHL playoffs right now. Because, yeah, you have the NBA playoffs and you have baseball going on, but there's more hockey now than when there ever has been before. Usually it's at 7 o'clock at night and and a nine o'clock game, and that's all you're going to see. You're seeing two games a night. Now you got four or five games going on at once. So the NHL knows that this window is there. So I feel like when they have that opportunity to go back to normal, you will see that moment to where it's like, hey, we're going to let people back in because you want that behind the curtains things again to get people back to the NHL. Yeah. Can I just make one request though, and not play these nine thirty oh games God. all the time? <laughs> this is the part that I don't understand, Jr. Because, and this is me on a soapbox again, but the NHL saw the numbers last year. Like they saw what St. Louis market did for TV ratings, whether it was national broadcasts for Fox Sports Midwest, when they went from the first round of the Cup final everyone was watching. They were blowing out numbers left and right. How does the NHL look at that and say, okay, we got a Vancouver team. Yes, Western Conference. We got to kind of put them on the West Coast time frame. But how do you look at that and say, we got to get St. Louis on prime time? Like Vancouver's important, but St. Louis seems to be, it should be the more important thing from the market. Yeah, I talked to somebody at the league uh, yesterday, and their understanding is, you know, the two primary uh, companies that work with the NHL in terms of networks, it's NBC here in the States, it's uh, Rogers Sportsnet in Canada, mm-hmm. and Sportsnet wants the Vancouver Canucks in that 7.30 local, we're talking Pacific time. Prime time for them. Time slot. That's what they want. Yeah. So that's what Sportsnet wants. That's what Sportsnet gets. And it doesn't matter that the Blues have good ratings and won the Stanley Cup. You're getting the 930 start. Thank God that the Vancouver Canucks are the only team that's in the Western time zone that <laughs> has that demand because hopefully we get back to the point where if they said make it to the second round, you're looking at more of 730 starts. Well, the Blues could have helped us out if they beat Dallas and they get Calgary in that first round, we wouldn't have all these. So you're blaming the Blues on this one. <laughs> I will make sure Craig Ruby knows that the next Zoom conference. Uh, JR, we talked about the normal, uh, I guess the new normal, and not having what used to be postseason hockey and what we're used to. Um, you have a really interesting article coming out tomorrow on The Athletic that you went down to the Enterprise Center earlier today to take in what should be a packed house for playoff hockey. Yeah, tonight is uh, game five, and as we know, Blues with the quote-unquote home ice, Mm -hmm. they would have uh, the game tonight at Enterprise Center, and that place would be rocking. And I was there earlier today, Alex, and let me tell you, I was the only person in the entire bowl area. (laughs) Now, yeah, there might be security guards back at the desk, but I was the only person... Now, it's 80 degrees in the building. I was walking around. You can break a sweat in that place. (laughs) You know, I don't want to call it dirty and dusty because they've kept things relatively clean. It's just surreal. Like, you can... The noises from downtown just echo through the Enterprise Center. And, you know, I sat on the bench. I went to sections where, let's just say, like, Anthony Maroon and and Pat Maroon's family sat and, uh, you know, took some pictures. and, And you just sit there and you think... It's unreal that 
an NHL playoff game could be held here. Just a year ago, this yeah. place, the, the roof was blowing off, and now they're in Edmonton with no fans, and everybody who's been a fan, whether it's been 10 years, 20 years, or since 1967, is watching at home on TV. So it's an empty building. It shouldn't be that way. We know why it is, but uh, I'm going to try to put together a story. It should be up at the Athletic St. Louis tomorrow on just how eerily quiet that Enterprise Center is. Was there ice down? I'm assuming there wasn't, right? No, there's not. Wow. So just... That that's that's really eerie for me to sit there and think about because you're used to that place being packed and when you think about what they did for the upgrades and look nobody expected this but to have all of those updates and to have all of the the new uh, amenities inside Enterprise Center for these fans and it not being used it's just a strange feeling knowing that we are watching playoff hockey and look you don't know if it's going to be another Stanley Cup championship or not you don't know if this team can make another run so last year could be in unique itself but to sit there and think about a stanley cup run again this year and all of those watch parties that were so successful and all of those crowds that were outside the building from three o'clock on to not have that it just really paints a picture of what 2020 has been and how strange this is going to be moving forward exactly exactly toughest part for me the beer tap's completely dry. <laughs> That's very tough. That's very tough. I'm curious, too, what's it like walking by a locker room? Because we're used to being down below the bottles of Enterprise Center standing by those doors and nothing, like no equipment, nobody running around. You don't see Joel Goldberg going back and forth running with sticks or bags. Like, it's just, it's dead. It's a dark hallway, and I'll give you a little tease. I took some video walking out of the Blues locker room out to the ice area so you have a little 10-15 second video within the story did you do one of those slow-mo like blues walks out to the <laughs> rink like the like they do when they go uh for more for uh warm-ups yeah maybe not maybe not i looked uh, i looked like the goalie and i had the pads underneath my clothes <laughs> the goalie from the geico there. commercial right <laughs> that's funny that's jeremy rutherford of course of the athletic he is hanging out with us here until seven o'clock it is the boardwalk cardboard floors behind the bench let's get into a little blues side of all of this how they've played what's changed and what is going going to change now without Vladimir Tarasenko in the lineup. So we'll touch on all of that next here on Behind the Bench. I'm Alex Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Back in here on a Wednesday night as we are kicking off our pre-pregame coverage for the game number five, Blues and Canucks in action tonight. A little past 9.30, we'll be puck drop with Chris Kerber and Joe Vitale. We got the first Community Credit Union pregame show at 8.30. BMW of West St. Louis pregame skate starting at 9. Plenty more Blues content for you from now until 8.30. And right now, we're talking on Behind the Bench. Of course, brought to you by Boardwalk Hardwood Floors as we are with Jeremy Rutherford of The Athletic, who covers the St. Louis Blues team and JR let's get into the blue side of this one and we'll start with the news that I know a lot of people are talking about and that's the injury to Vladimir Tarasenko uh, from all we understand and Bruby spoke yesterday about this it's nothing that was apparent it's nothing that was a major blow to his recovery it's just something was nagging him and he had to go back to St. Louis to get it figured out so I'm curious on your opinion was this more of a preventative movement by the Blues to make sure that hey look this is our this is our superstar. We got to make sure he's okay. Or was this something of a oh this isn't good. Let's get this figured out. I don't think this is good. I don't. And I think that it's more than preventative, Alex, because he said, according to Craig Bruby, 
Vladimir Tarasenko said that it doesn't feel right. And so, you know, I don't think the Blues just come out and say, hey, we're going to send them back to uh, St. Louis for reevaluation unless they think it's something serious. I mean, mm-hmm. you're taking him out of the bubble. He has to come back and quarantine, so on and so forth. So you just don't do that willy-nilly. So this has to be significant to the point where uh, they're somewhat worried about. And I think it underscores what a lot of people said, and I realize fans aren't doctors, but when you hear a guy's going in for surgery twice in 18 months yeah. on, on the same shoulder, it's fine if you work at a uh, – florist <laughs> but if you score goals at 30 35 40 a year and you need that shot right you need that shoulder and so uh, I think this, you know, trying not to overreact is a little bit concerning for Vladimir Tarasenko's future uh with his career and so you know, does it affect the Blues right now? I'm sure we'll get into that. I don't think so because he wasn't the player that you're used to seeing. Right. So if you want to have the name and the number on the ice, yeah, you had 91 there for a couple games, but you got you didn't have a guy who was aggressive and scoring the 11 goals like he did in last year's postseason. So to me, uh, you step back and you say, okay, well, we'll wait to hear what they say on Vladimir Tarasenko and, and the reevaluation. And in the meantime, like the Blues have done for a couple of years in a row now, especially last season, you just plug and play, put somebody in there and and try to uh, keep your identity. I talked about this with Joe Vitale last night, JR, on This Week in Hockey, and asked him because he obviously a former NHL player. He knows these injuries, but you've covered a lot of NHL players before. When it's, when it's a shoulder and it's the same shoulder and it's two different surgeries, but it's still two surgeries on that shoulder, that has to be a problem, or at least there's a red flag that goes off there. And, and what Joey said was, yes, that's bad, but that's something players can overcome when it's a hip or when it's an ACL. You know, the legs feed the wolf, and if those aren't going, you're not playing. But in that sense, the arms feed the wolf for Vladimir Tarasenko, right? So when it's two surgeries on your arm, to me, it's kind of like when you have multiple concussions. Like You have to be a lot more cautious about the way you play because you're more likely to pull another injury. Right, and the one thing that we have to keep in mind here is, is it truly a setback? Is it a situation, Alex, where maybe he's got some scar tissue or maybe it just doesn't feel right? And I have to stress, I'm not a doctor. Yeah. But, you know, or is it something structurally that isn't right or something that, you know, just didn't get corrected? Mm -hmm. And would they have to perform another surgery? We're getting ahead of ourselves here. But I think there's a difference between, eh, it just doesn't feel right. Maybe it needs some more time. Look, they jumped into playoff hockey. Mm -hmm. He goes from zero to 60, you know, playing playoff hockey. And if it doesn't feel right and that's what it turns out to be, then maybe he's okay. I think where the the question and the concern comes in is that here's a guy who had an extra four months to strengthen that shoulder. Could you imagine if we were back in mid-March right now, I guess it would have been late March when he would have come back to the lineup and he would have had these issues, the Blues would have been grilled for bringing him back too soon and pushing it, and and he was ready to come back. But if we're talking he comes back in that road trip where they were going to go to Philly and Florida, uh, and then now we're talking about pulling him back and, and – and sending him back to back to St. Louis for a reevaluation, you know, I think that would have been huge after five months. But the fact that he had those extra four months and he's still experiencing this, you know, I think is, is pretty concerning. Well, and that was my next question. I mean, could it be a possibility that maybe he still came back 
too soon. I mean, it was a five to six month recovery period when we found out in October. Um, of course, at that five to six month, you add in four more months. But could it have been too soon of just throwing him back in there, Jr.? And again, neither of us are doctors with this, but to just go from being off for for five to six months getting back onto the ice, but being in quarantine where you're locked in your house and there's not much you're doing to training camp playoff hockey. Like, if you're in the regular season, at least you're getting more practices and you could find out how he's feeling. They really didn't have that opportunity as much because, look, at the end of the day, you're not going hard with your teammates in training camps. You're just going through training camp. Yeah, and you're right. You know, the extra few months where you're not really practicing, you know, it's not like you had nine months of training. You you have five, you know, you come back after... Uh, the surgery, and then you, you skated. I think he skated in late February yeah. and started taking some shots and doing things like that. So I understand where you're coming from. I guess the only thing is he was skating weeks before training camp, yeah. taking shots. Then they had their phase two. He's there taking shots. And then uh, you have your training camp two weeks. We had Zoom calls with him. He said he was fine. Mm-hmm. We were at practice. He looked great. We the shots saw, looked phenomenal. We saw the shots. We tweeted, the shot looks great. This yeah. is phenomenal. And then he gets up there, and I, I just think it's the competition. Like in a training camp where you got your teammates, you're not bumping like you are. Yeah. Um, so you get up to Edmonton, and I just think that, you know, he's saying it doesn't feel right, and it's kind of too risky to have him in there if he doesn't feel right. One stat that I had in my story uh, yesterday I thought was pretty interesting was uh, you got 23 skaters that have played for the Blues. Only one of them hasn't had a hit, hasn't delivered a hit in the entire tournament. And it's Vladimir Tarasenko. Wow. So he's not testing that that shoulder, uh, which you can't play like Vladimir Tarasenko until yep. you're comfortable. Well, and especially when you look at how he played last year in the playoffs. I mean, this was a physical aspect of the game. It's What Craig Berube did with Tarasenko was much like what Barry Trotz did with Alex Ovechkin. He changed the player. Last year, Tarasenko wasn't just an offensive force. He was a defensive force. He was a weapon for you on the forecheck. And if you can't play that way, you're just not going to be effective. So you can understand kind of where that is. And obviously, our, our, best, uh, our best wishes to Vladimir Tarasenko through all of this. And I believe Doug Armstrong and the Blues said that Doug Armstrong would give an update on Monday, Monday to find out with Tarasenko. But you you lose one and you add one, Jr. And we're going under the assumption that Ivan Barbashev is in the lineup tonight. All signs pointing towards it as he cleared quarantine, um, had those four negative tests or four positive tests, I should say, four negative tests. I don't know. <laughs> this whole thing is so confusing. Getting Barbashev back. You take a Russian, you add a Russian. It's not the same guy. Ter- Barbashev's not going to be a 35-40 goal scorer for you, but what Barbashev is going to be is an element that you have desperately missed, and that's depth to your lines that Craig Berube can trust to throw out there. But a couple of things. I think you're adding a better player at this point, and that's no knock on Vladimir Tarasenko, but if you got him at 60%, uh, Barbashev coming in here, and he is so excited to get going. Plus, Alex, I think what taking Tarasenko out of the lineup has done which the Blues and Craig Bruby have done for you know two years now, is they have to adjust. And it seems like whatever decision they make ends up turning out to be gold. And, right. and, and so you look at that, that top line, those first few games, the round-robin games, when Tarasenko was in the lineup, uh, Schwartz, Shin, Tarasenko, they were invisible. Mm-hmm. They had no shots. I think two shots on goal combined between the three of them. And maybe part of that reason, not to put it all on Vladdy, because Schwartz and Shen can do more, but there just wasn't anything being created. They didn't have the puck. And so now without uh, Tarasenko, you have that uh, top line 
with uh, O'Reilly, Perron, and Schwartz mm-hmm. that has just been outstanding in a series. Probably the reason that this series is tied two games apiece. And then secondly, you're moving some other guys around. We might see Robert Thomas in a top six role tonight. You might see Ivan Barbashev in the middle on yep. that third line. Ivan Barbashev loves to play center. If you talk to him, you know, I think De La Rose, Sunquist, a lot of these guys, you know, they prefer to play in the middle. I think uh, after missing four games, you tell number 49 Barbashev to get out there in the middle. I think he's going to be, what's the over under, six, seven hits tonight? <laughs> I'd put it at about 10. And then on top of it, I'd put it by two goals because there is, so, there is something called new dad strength, JR. And this is something Joey and I talked about before Barbashev even returned to the bubble. Barbashev is going to be a threat tonight (laughs) because one, he hasn't hit a guy in like what, over a week or two? Two, he's got new baby strength. And he's going to go out there and he's going to be something that Vancouver wasn't expecting because, look, the Blues have played physical. They've out-hit Vancouver this entire series. But Barbashev is going to be a monster in himself in front of the net, causing problems for the defenseman, getting in Jacob Markstrom's grill. All of these factors are going to play into Ivan Barbashev's return. And what I like to remind people is, Barbashev was a top-line player for the Blues in the past. When the the year of, um, I think it was with Paul Stastny, yeah. correct? Where they didn't have Vladdy Tarasenko or they didn't have Paul Stastny, they put Barbashev up there. Barbashev was a, th- a force to be reckoned with. And he might not score you goals, but he's going to create opportunities. So that's why I think this is going to be a huge addition for Craig Berube tonight. Well, and I think it could be a great third line if it happens. We don't know where he's going to be, but could it be Sanford, Barbashev, Blay on that third line? I like that line. And we liked the fourth line yeah. the other night when you had uh, McEachern and, and De La Rose and Sunquist. I thought those guys looked good. So we're kind of speculating here. We don't know uh, what the lineup will look like, but uh, man, that new dad strength. How come I didn't get that after I had my two kids? My articles were still crummy after I had the two kids. You should have uh, just combined the new dad strength together, right? <laughs> Joe, Joe told the story two weeks ago uh, when he was in the AHL. He left to go back home to his wife who was having his first child. He returned the next day, and it was the playoffs. He scored two goals. I think he had three points, and they won the game and won the series. Wow. So it's one of those things. I mean, look at Mike Trout right now. The guy has a baby. Next thing you know, he's pounding 10 home runs in the next like 15 games. So like it's it's a real thing right now and Barbashev's one of those guys that makes everyone else around him play better, JR. Like you know that little corner of the locker room, it's the younger guys. Joe calls them the isle, the uh, island of the misfits because you got Barbashev, Sunquist, McEachern. You got all of those guys kind of sitting together in the locker room joking around, but much like what Pat Maroon and I'm not comparing the two, but what Pat Maroon did of bringing a new energy into that locker room on the ice off the ice Barbashev seems to be a guy that can do that as well. I think so too, Alex. And the one thing that I'll add into this uh, conversation is that could you imagine the weight on Barbashev's shoulders when he shows up for training camp and he knows that he's going to be leaving the Edmonton bubble for this? And he looks on the board and Craig Bruby talks to him. He says, hey, listen, we know you're leaving. We're going to put McEachern in your spot. Every day, Ivan Barbashev is practicing with the extra guys. He's not on his fourth line with Sunquist and Steen. Now he comes to St. Louis. They have the baby boy. He's back to Edmonton. He does the four-day quarantine. He's cleared. He practiced with the he, – he's past all that now. Uh-huh. All he can think about is hockey now. I can't imagine the weight that's left. And he's locked in his hotel room for four straight – like – being in a bubble's got to be rough, and, and we've talked to guys. You've talked to guys. It's not easy being out there, and I know. I'm not trying to put lay the sympathy like I'm not playing the world's smallest violin right now for him, but that's not easy. But imagine being 
on this whole cloud nine when you're in St. Louis or you have a baby boy, you're with your wife, you're skating on the ice, and then coming to Edmonton and being locked in a room and not being able to talk to anybody. <laughs> like, it's the polar opposite. So, like, honestly, it feels like it's a caged lion to where he's just sitting there and he's waiting. He gets on the ice yesterday, which I think was an optional skate, or at least it was a skate for the team, but a light day for guys who just played a heavy-fought game against Vancouver. But Barbashev's probably the one that's winding around and wheeling around on that ice because he's like, I got to get into this right now. He's got to be ready to go, and the Blues do. They get down in a 2-0 hole, Alex and fight back. They've played well. We've talked about, Ken, they turn the switch on. Whether it was a switch or whatever it was, that Blues team in Game 4 just looked terrific. So Barbashev's going to be hungry. The Blues should be excited as well, like Ivan Barbashev, to get back out there. And I want to talk about that, about turning the switch on, JR. I want to talk about going into this best of three now for St. Louis, because there's an opportunity, I think, in this specific game that Vancouver doesn't realize yet. So let's get into that next as we come back. It's Behind the Bench, presented by Boardwalk Hardwood Floors. Jeremy Rutherford of The Athletic is with us. we got plenty more Blues conversation and hockey conversation for you before we get to puck drop tonight of Game 5. 8.30 pregame, 9.30 puck drop here on 101 ESPN. Final time tonight here on the Boardwalk Hardwood Floors Behind the Bench Show. Jeremy Rutherford of The Athletic is with us, hanging out until about 7 o'clock. Then plenty more conversation to get into. Jeff Burton and Donnie Fandango are going to join me at 7 to do a little last-minute podcast roundtable. You'll hear from Bernie Federko, from Keith Kachuk, from Mackenzie McEachern. A lot of great more blues content for you leading up to our pregame show at 8.30. Puck drop for game number 5 between the Blues and Canucks at about 9.30. So, Jr. I teased it by saying there's something that the Blues have right now that Vancouver's not really sure that they have, and that's that killer mentality. Go back to the postseason where the Blues would lose to the Minnesota Wild, or they lose to the Kings, or they lose to the Blackhawks. That press conference, which I don't remember the exact year, but Doug Armstrong, when he said the cliche, jam the knife into the brain and kill the opponent. Right now, Vancouver had that opportunity in Game 3 to jam the knife into the Stanley Cup champions and kill the opponent. If Vancouver would have gone up 3 to nothing in a bubble that the Blues have veterans that have family that want to get home, you may you take the will to win away from them. That one overtime victory though, it felt like you could see the fear that Vancouver had and I guarantee the Blues could smell it. Vancouver doesn't know how to kill off their opponent right now because they're a bunch of young guys. St. Louis does, and I think that's what that blood in the water is going into tonight's game. Which is understandable, I think. And if you go back to when Doug Armstrong made that famous comment, Alex, it was a situation that Blues roster didn't have a lot of postseason experience. Mm -hmm. Yes, they had some veteran players. They had some players that had been around David Backus and, and that group. But they didn't know how to handle teams in those situations. And so I actually picked Vancouver as one of my dark horses when we were asked to do that prior to the playoffs starting. But my logic was that they had a lot of good young talent. But if those guys could play their game and and take it to teams and use their speed, use their skill, they could make a little bit of a run, maybe two, three rounds. 
However, I think what you're saying is exactly right. You get to a situation where they're up 2-0 in the series or 2-1, and you know now you're playing game four. Well, now you've got an experienced Stanley Cup pedigree team in the St. Louis Blues who says, listen, we can play better than this. Mm-hmm. We know if we lose another game or two, we are headed home, and we're not going out like that. Yeah. And so I think you had that killer instinct that Doug Armstrong was talking about uh, a few years ago applied in that situation. But why were they able to pull that out of a hat? It's because they developed it last year. Yeah. They know what it takes. Yes, it took them a while to be able to figure it out and, and play the way they play, but you know, it's it's not easy to pull everything together. And, and so I, I think you're exactly right. I think the reason that Vancouver uh, ha- has now found itself in a 2-2 uh, series is because the Blues rose to the occasion and also, we can't overlook the fact that those first couple games, Vancouver really taking it, uh, you know, on the power play. Mm-hmm. Uh, the games one, one through three, they were six for eleven on the power play with twelve shots on goal. Game four, zero for seven yeah. with eight shots. So the Blues have controlled the series five on five for the most part, even early on when they lost a couple games. And now that's kind of caught up to Vancouver. I found it really interesting after game four, you had two different conversations going on with Vancouver. And before I do that, let me preface it by going back to last year. After the hand pass game, what does Craig Bruby say in the press conference? We're moving on to the next game. What does the team say in the locker room? We're moving on to the next game. In the Boston series, after a loss, it's the same mindset on both sides. Flash forward to game four after the loss. JT Miller says that, uh, right, we got to find a way to keep Ryan O'Reilly in the Blues. They're spending all the time in our zone and none of the time in theirs. Then your head coach, Travis Green, is saying, I thought we were fine. We were even with them at five-on-five play. First of all, what the hell kind of game were you watching, Travis Green? But the part that jumped out to me, JR, was your coach is saying one thing and your leader is saying the other. If you have that, your locker room is thinking, okay, well, where are we at right now? Whereas when Barubi is saying, we're fine. When Petrangelo is saying, we're fine, the younger guys are like, we're good. It's different to me. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. And and you do follow the message of your coach. And I realize sometimes you get in there, maybe you're on the Zoom with the players first, and he says what he says, and then the coach comes on. And I got to agree that Travis Green saying that, no, I thought we were fine five on five. He's watching a different game. Uh, so that's what the Blues have been able to figure out, Alex, for yeah. the past couple of years. And I'm not saying that, that Craig Bribby goes in the locker room and he says, hey, guys, when you talk to the reporters, here's what we're going to say. We, we want to be on the same message. But it just – you know, emanates down from the coach, yeah. and the players know what everybody's thinking. They know what the coaching staff is thinking. Uh, but again, I can't stress enough: you can't get to that point with your team and your roster unless you go through it and you experience some of the things that you just referenced: mm-hmm. the hand pass, so on and so forth. Losing Game Six on home ice. Yeah. Now we got to go to Boston. Getting embarrassed at home yeah. in Game Six. Yeah, a lot of things. So this is why it takes young teams, even though they got a ton of skill. You take the, if you were starting a hockey team right now, you take that Vancouver roster in a heartbeat. Yeah. With, with those oh, young God, players, yeah. you know, you hate to run into them. And and hey, listen, let's not put the cart before the horse. They could win this series somehow. It's true. You, you see weird bounces. So you know, the Blues have yet to win this series. We're not trying to say that uh, they've figured it out and, and, and they'll win. 
the the point that you and I are trying to make here is that uh, the Blues, wow, they took some notes last year yep. and they pulled out these notes, you know, before game three and game four, and they studied for this test and they are ready to ace it. This was the open book test where the Vancouver Canucks were the team that studied the week prior <laughs> and said, I don't need the open book. Yeah. I got this. I can skate whereas, 100 miles an hour. Whereas the Blues were the slacker kids like, oh yeah, uh, open book test. I'm going to open this bad yeah. boy up. Blues ace that <laughs> test. Vancouver learns a lesson along the way. Um, the the adversity. I think that's another. You mentioned the puck bouncing. I thought in the first two games, and really in the round robin games for the Blues, the luck was going the other way. And look, to win the Stanley Cup, you got to be a good team, but you got to have the hockey gods on your side. You got to have the puck luck. And they had that. Go back to the Dallas Stars double overtime. That puck goes over the line. Bowmeister's stick's not there. You're talking about the Dallas Stars moving on to the Western Conference final and possibly not beating the Sharks. So. The, the Vancouver Canucks had some puck luck in those first couple of games to beat Bennington to squeak through those pads, had their track record on them. But you have to battle through that. And I think the adversity that the Blues are going through right now, they battled through that adversity. The, Perron talked about it, I think, after game two. Nobody counted on us in January last year. We're not trying to say that the Stanley Cup is this year like last year, but the adversity that they've fought through in the past, I feel like is something that they feel like is on their shoulders again, that they really thrive under. Yeah, that's why I've always looked at hockey as somewhat different than baseball, football, basketball. And I realize some weird things can happen in those sports. You know, you you throw a pass and it gets intercepted, you know, turnover in, in, in basketball. Uh, you know, I, I think that hockey, though, you never know what can happen with that puck. <laughs> if you don't believe it, go back and look at Steve Eiserman's shot on John exactly. Casey at net. So you can have the best team, and you may not win the Stanley Cup because there's just so many things that can happen. Yeah. But, you know, if you're a team like the Blues, you caught a lot. You don't want to say caught a lot of breaks last year mm-hmm. because I'm a firm believer that you make your own breaks. But... There are a lot of things that went the Blues' way last year. And so when they were scuffling the first couple games of this return to play, you know, and I wrote a story saying that someone please remind them that this isn't 2019. It was a great piece. Well, and what I was trying to say was that it doesn't always bounce that way for you. And you can work hard and you can think that, hey, we're going to be fine, but it doesn't always mean that you're going to be fine until you start playing hard and just not putting it in somebody else's hands. Do what your part is and play hard and put it together, show the work ethic, play 60 minutes. And so I think the Blues are doing that right now. But all that said, we could watch game five tonight and a couple bad bounces yep. against the Blues, and all of a sudden Vancouver's up 3-2. to two. And I think at this point we could all realistically say that the Blues are the better team, mm-hmm. but it doesn't guarantee you anything. No, it doesn't. I mean, one puck bounces over a bad sheet of ice over a player's stick, turns into a breakaway, and you're talking about a goal that ends the game in overtime. So this really can be any way, and it's not supposed to sound like it's directed one way, but th- I mean, that's true. The Blues are the better team right now, but things can change in an awful hurry in a best-of-seven series. Uh, one player, though, that has been doing everything right, that has been putting everything out on the ice for the Blues has been Ryan O'Reilly. And you talked about him a couple of days ago on Rivs and BKJR, and when you look at the numbers of Ryan O'Reilly in terms of puck possession, puck battles, loose puck prevention, uh, defensive ability, the penalty minutes that he does not have on his resume in the postseason... This is a guy who does everything, and he excels in kind of he sends his teammates to another level from the way that O'Reilly plays on the ice. 
You know what? When I think about Ryan O'Reilly, this is what I think about. Okay, so he, you, you win the Stanley Cup. He's the Conn Smythe winner. Mm-hmm. He's the Selkie winner. You know, a couple of days after the Stanley Cup, you're sitting there staring into the clouds and you go, I can't believe the Blues got this guy in a trade. Yep. But yet, a year and a half later, I can't believe it even more. <laughs> like, he won the Stanley Cup and won the Selkie, and yet a year and a half, it's even more puzzling than it was then, and it's because this guy just brings everything. Right. To the ice, absolutely everything. Thomas Drance, I thought, had a great piece on Ryan O'Reilly in The Athletic uh, yesterday, uh, just showing with some video all the detail, the subtle things in his game yep. uh, that, that he brings. So you can see the the great plays. You can see the goal. You can see the pass. You can see him staying after practice and Robert Thomas under his wing. You can see all that stuff. But to truly appreciate Ryan O'Reilly, I think you have to see him night in and night out for one. Second of all, and I don't pretend to know hockey any better than anybody listening to the show here, but it's the things in between the plays, yeah. where he's positioning himself, where he's putting his stick, where he's skating to. There's a lot of times where he sacrifices what could be a potential good play for him to get in a position to make sure it's a better play for somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. I think he's terrific. I think he's exactly what the Blues needed and – Minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, I still can't believe they pulled off that trade. But it's the same circumstance, JR, to where it truly is the player has to match the system. You know, like people ask the question, how the heck did Colorado and Buffalo not keep this guy? Well, look at what he said after his time in Buffalo. Sometimes you just get sick of losing and you're just tired of it. In Colorado, it it wasn't a system that was working in favor of Ryan O'Reilly. The coaching staff had changed so much in Colorado, in Buffalo, that Ryan O'Reilly's system never played there. He comes to St. Louis, and let's not remember the first couple of months with Mike Yo, the Blues weren't winning. O'Reilly was scoring, but the Blues weren't winning. It was when Craig Berube's system took over that he excelled at. This is a player who's defensively responsible. This is a player who can create offense out of nothing. He's phenomenal at terms of puck forechecking and puck creation, but it didn't work with the systems. He has found the right system for the Blues, which is why, yes, this is a steal, but it's also one of those things that it's like, like you have to applaud Doug Armstrong for knowing that this player would work in this system so well because he could have been traded to somebody else and he wouldn't find success. Yeah, and I think Doug Armstrong has a knack for that. He's proven over his 10 years on the job uh, that he can find guys that fit what they're doing. He's got a great staff. He's got guys out on the road that are checking those things out, and they talk, and, and they were on to Ryan O'Reilly. You know, And I also think, you know, paying attention to the league for you know, 15, 20 years, that it's all about the fit. I mean, you can have generational players like a Crosby mm-hmm. and a McDavid, and you're going to win games just be on their sheer skill alone. Right. And, you know, it's not to say it's a one-man band. You know, they've got some other players that, that help them out. Uh, but to me, it's it's the fit. And so for years, I remember writing stories forever about, are the Blues ever going to find a number one center? You know, Chicago drafts Jonathan Taves after the Blues draft Eric Johnson, and they get their number mm-hmm. one center. And, and and that's what the Blues needed. And uh, Yori Laterra. <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> he's able to pull off this trade for Ryan O'Reilly. And, you know, Colorado had uh, some skill guys. They had later on after O'Reilly was drafted, you know, you got your Landeskog and, of and those guys. So they were kind of cupboard was full on those offensive skill guys you know he he's he goes to uh, buffalo 
and Buffalo, you know, putting it mildly, train wreck, you know. Yeah. And, and and so when you lose so much, you just lose that passion. He voiced it. He took a lot of criticism for it. But now he gets here to St. Louis, and I just think, you know, cliche here, but perfect storm. Mm-hmm. You, the players around him, like a David Perron, the coach, the system, everything, yeah. and he's been able to excel. A couple more, JR, before I want to – touch on with you before we wrap up David Perron uh, a player who we talked about this on the broadcast a couple of games ago but you look at the maturation of David Perron when he was drafted what he was in the 20s when he was selected by the St. Louis Blues if you go back to that draft it's hard to argue that he wouldn't be a top five player selected um, in that round or in that uh, in that year. But with David Perron's maturation, this was a guy who was a scorer when he was young. He went out and he learned a little defensive responsibility. He went out and became a, a, a well-rounded 200-foot player. But now he comes back to St. Louis, JR, and he finds, he finds a different role. He can still score goals. He's still a threat on the ice. But he's become the pest. He's become the thorn in the side because he knows that's where he excels. Because players get so pissed off at him on the ice that they make mistakes. He's going to make a mistake every once in a while, but when you make a mistake with David Perron, boom, there's he and O'Reilly with a 1-2 pass and you're talking about a two-goal lead. From what David Perron has turned into is just a, an incredible story in itself. And we talk about Ryan O'Reilly not being the right fit. This was a guy in Perron who went to different teams but always came back to St. Louis, and it always always was the right fit here. It's funny that you say story because I was in the Blues locker room for training camp when a 19-year-old David Perron arrives on the scene. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of growing and mature maturity mm-hmm. to go through. Uh, but you saw that raw talent. And I remember saying to him, he was probably only here a year or two, and and I said, uh, David, hey, one day you know, I'm going to write a book with you. It's going to be about your career. And and so he gets traded to Edmonton, I think, as he was leaving. I said, well, I guess we're not doing that book, huh? <laughs> and then uh, so then he comes back to St. Louis, and you think, hey, maybe uh, maybe you know, that book, maybe that book's still alive. And so then he goes to Vegas in the expansion draft. Okay, well, we're not doing that. And then he comes back, and and now he wins a Stanley Cup. And you know, I realize the older you get, the more you learn the better you are but right now is David Prawn's best hockey yeah. by far 200 feet the shot he's adapted his shot he never quits learning he, he he's told us he told you that uh, he's watched how these young guys have come into the league and he analyzes their shot and he said I think that could help me and so we saw it this year with <laughs> the 28 goals tied with uh, Braden Shen Mr. Overtime yeah uh, we call him so he's been absolutely terrific and just one thing on, on David Prawn. He's absolutely been a pest in this series, and you know that goes back to earlier days, too. He was that way against the L.A. Kings yeah. in some of those series. Uh, but I put out that tweet the other night that said, Hey, Vancouver fans, tell me what you think about David Perron. <laughs> and it wasn't to antagonize it's Pandora's the, box <laughs> Canuck fan base. It was just to say, Hey, what do you think about him? And I was shocked. I mean, this is the playoffs. This is the opposing fan base. Mm-hmm. I was ready to get a bunch of replies that said, you know, worst ever, you know, he's he's this, he's that, get him out of the league, you know, all that stuff. And I would say 90% of them were positive. I would take him on my team any wow. day. And, you know, that shows the professionalism of some of the fans up there in Vancouver. But, but I think they're being honest that he's got the skill and he can also 
upset you. It's interesting, though, because... He's doing both of that right now. It's the polar opposite. If you ask other people about Brad Marchand, he's the worst. A lot of people would say, yeah, we want him on our team, but he's the worst. Antoine Roussel, he's not scoring goals. Nobody wants that guy, unless you have him on your team. But that's interesting that another team looks at him and says, I want this this guy. But honestly, if you go back through that draft, that was the year that I think Patrick Kane was selected in the NHL. Maybe I'm mistaken on that. i got to go back and look at... Yeah, no, I think they had the three first-round draft picks that year. Yeah, but... I mean, to, to, to talk about a guy who was selected in the 20s and say, this is a top five NHL draft pick now, that's a pretty impressive career to turn around. And I mean, I think you nailed it on the head. You should write a book about this guy because he's that interesting. He might be the most interesting man in hockey. Yeah, and the, the Blues, uh, the slots that they had, uh, gosh, memory just disappears. But I want to say it was like 9, 21, and 26. They had the ninth pick. They trade it to San Jose. San Jose takes Logan Couture. The Blues fall back a couple spots, take Lars Eller, and then later on with their second pick, I believe they moved up and they took Ian Cole, and then with their third first-round pick, they take David Perron. You know, all those names I mentioned are, you know, first-rounders usually turn out to be NHL players, but yeah. all of them have, have turned out. Uh, but of that group that we just talked about, you can make a case, you know, besides Logan Couture, he's been terrific in uh, in San Jose that uh, David Braun turned out to be one of the best. I don't want to waste any time here, um, any more of your time, but so he was selected 26th overall. 26. I'm, I'm going to name some of these names for you, JR. Tell me if you'd take him over these players. James Van Riemsdyk. He's been good, but I'd take Perron. Kyle Turris. Yeah, definitely. Perron. Thomas Hickey. Yep. Sam Gagne. Yep. Jakob Voracek. Decent career, but uh, but I'd take Perron. Yep. Logan Couture. He, he's had a, a great career. Yeah. So, so you go through this list. Patrick Kane, Logan Couture, you could argue Jakub Voracek. Those would be the three that I would be selecting over David Perron. So, I mean, again, you're talking about a player who could be considered top five now if you go back to that 2007 draft. Yeah, and this is a story that I've said dozens of times, so you don't don't need to spell out all the details, but that was the year that the Blues told me that they tried to make a pitch to Chicago for that first overall to get Patrick Kane. I had heard even that they offered all three first-round picks. Wow. That's what somebody said. But then another person in Chicago told me that it was an established defenseman, maybe a Barrett Jackman, and two of the first-rounders to get Patrick Kane. Turns out that Kane now is public enemy number (laughs) one in St. Louis. Obviously, Blues fans would have loved him if he would have came to St. Louis. Best American player of all time. Yeah. And don't uh, send me in messages on Twitter after <laughs> That's I said at that. JP Rutherford <laughs> to send those. Hey, JR, man, thank you so much for sticking around tonight with us and talking hockey. It's great to catch up. I know right now things are hectic for all of us because of 9.30 starts, because of the playoffs, and because we're doing all of this from home. But it's phenomenal stuff at The Athletic, as always. So thank you again, and uh, we'll be talking throughout the rest of this series. Thanks, Alex. All right, that's Jeremy Rutherford. We'll take a break, and we will come back. 7 o'clock hour, playoff preview. Pre-pregame continues next here on 101 ESPN.